1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. The title of today's sermon is Living in Christ Church, or maybe I would say Living as Christ Church, and you'll see why in just a moment. We'll hear now the word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we ask now that you would indeed speak to our hearts through your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I think in this series over the last you know, several weeks, we have discussed and I have shared with you the importance and the centrality of corporate worship, that this is the most important hour of the week. God has promised to meet with His people. When His, when his children gather in His name to worship Him as He's regulated in Scripture, He is there in their midst. But this morning, what I want to do is shift the focus a little, and I want to focus on the fact that all of life is to be an act of worship to God. Paul said in Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The offering of your whole selves is the very heart of Christian worship. We begin the week corporately and worshiping the Lord together. And that's the pattern that we're to follow as individuals and families for the remainder of the week. And so this morning, I want to reflect on how we're to live in light of the fact that we're called to worship daily, how we're to live in Christ church, or as I said, as Christ church. Well, if you look at our passage what you find is Peter begins with the end. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. He's going to talk to us now about how we're to live in the present by first looking at what we'll face in the future. Basically, what he's saying is this. Christ's return is imminent. The judgment is near. And so live your life in light of it. And so we're to live with the end in mind. And when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, what he means is that all the major events in God's plan of redemption have occurred. And so everything is ready for Christ's return and for his rule. You know, the end began earlier on. It began at his birth, as it were. When it talks about the end times, the end began at Christ's first coming. When the second person of the triune God took on human flesh and he lived among us. And then, and then we know that the next major redemptive act in the history uh, in God's providence was Christ's death. And then we know what comes after his death is the resurrection. And then after the resurrection is ascension. 
And the final step consummating the all things at the end is his return. And so the point Peter is making is that the return of Christ should uh, serve to rouse us out of our slumber, and so we'll go to action in this world. Knowing that Jesus is coming again should spur us on to make our lives count for something now. We live in light of his second coming. And so what we find here in our passage is what you could call end-time ethics. Uh, Peter in these verses is answering the question, how are believers to live now Even when they're assaulted in their faith, you know, we heard of the assault that has taken place in places around the world for people to believe. And we may not face that kind of assault. We're not physically challenged because we are believers. But that was the setting of Peter's um, listeners and readers. They were exiles. They were dispersed throughout Asia Minor, and they were being persecuted for their faith. And so how are persecuted Christians to live in light of Christ's return? And and see, that context really is the same as ours. That was 2,000 years earlier, and he was saying, in light of Jesus' return. Well, we're 2,000 years later. In light of Jesus' return, we now have to live a certain way. And I would say that even the persecution is our context. Now, of course, as I said, we're not persecuted physically. But if you take persecution as, uh, generally speaking, meaning there's an assault on those things that we hold dear, then we surely are being persecuted. In this passage, Peter's going to call us and exhort us to pray. And uh, The world says what? Pick yourself up on your own bootstraps. You know, Christianity is just a crutch. And so they they tell you that, and you shouldn't rely on anyone, much less a God that probably doesn't exist, they say. Paul's going to exhort us to selflessly love others. And the world says, put yourself first. And really, if you need to, just step on others. And so you have that challenge to what Peter's going to challenge us to. Uh, Peter's going to call us to hospitality toward others. Uh, But the world says, why inconvenience yourself? And then Peter's going to call us to serve others. And you know the world says, why would you want to be anyone's servant? Uh, You should rule and you should live for the moment, even though Peter tells us that Jesus is going to return and you should live in light of the end. They say, no, 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 carpe diem, live for the moment. Seize the day. Don't worry about tomorrow. See, our society is self Centered. Our, our society um, is focused on self and what's going on in the here and now. And so we, like Peter's original readers, must live our faith in a world full of hatred for Christ and, and for what he teaches. And so again, our focus this morning is how we as a body of believers, as the family of God, as the living church, are to live our lives together. How are we to live as or in Christ's church? And what Peter does is he gives us four exhortations. I just mentioned them. To pray, to love, to show hospitality, and to exercise your gifts in the service for others. So prayer, love, hospitality, and the exercise of spiritual gifts. And we're going to look at each one of them. But before I do, let me just say something quickly. 
that when you look at these things, these are the things you're to do. Peter just said, Jesus Christ is going to come in judgment. He's going to return soon. The end of all things is at hand. How are we to live? And you think, wow, there must be some amazing thing I'm supposed to do now. You know, I'm going to part the Red Sea. There's going to be all these miracles. The end's here. What am I to do? And Peter says, here, this is what you're to do, just these four ordinary things. I want you to pray. You know, if you can, when you get out there, please serve others and love them. Uh, I, you know, I, I show hospitality. Open up your house to someone and love them. And so that's what we're to do. We think that it's going to be some grandiose thing. You know, Martin Luther was asked once, if you knew that Jesus Christ was returning tomorrow, if he was going to return tomorrow, how would you live? What would you do? And he said, oh, I would, I would go out and plant a tree and pay my taxes. And the point he was making was the instructions were given here on how to live are true if Jesus is returning tomorrow, in a month, in a year, or ten years. The remainder of your Christian life, these are the things you are to be doing. And so if serving someone, if tomorrow you, you knew Jesus was going to return and you knew you were going to have to take somebody a meal, you wouldn't say, well, I just got to give that up because Jesus returned. I have to do something substantial. No, you just go take them the meal and wait for your Savior to return. These are things that we do every day of our life until Christ returns. And so that aside now, these are common things. The first thing is to pray. Verse 7. Prayer. Prayer will never be a regular part of your life if you read verse 7 until you realize that you are mentally and spiritually alert. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You must keep in mind, uh, you need your mind fixed on spiritual priorities and righteous living. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, what? Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Being caught up in earthly things will ruin your prayer life. You're not getting the right perspective. He's not saying forget that you live on earth and don't get involved in this, don't get involved in politics, don't get involved in it, forget work, just, you know, just think of heaven. He's not saying that. He's saying don't fix your mind on that. View those things through the lens of of eternity, through the fact that Jesus is going to be returning. See, prayer requires effort. It's going to require focus. And you cannot allow yourself to be distracted by all the world's concerns and lusts and anxieties. With the end of all things at hand, you must now allow your minds not to focus on those things and not be distracted. Jesus put it this way. And notice, and Jesus is talking to us, he's expecting these things to happen, and he's warning us. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with drunkenness and anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch, and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man." So many things seek to distract you. They, they distract me. So many, so many things weigh our heart down. You know it's true. It happens to you. 
Aren't you easily distracted from prayer by all these worldly concerns? They, they so consume you that you get this, this focus that is so close that you can't see anything else. And, and you start worrying. And, and, and what happens is you lose your prayer life. And Peter says in our passage, as Jesus warned, Jesus said, watch and pray. Peter says you must remain self-controlled and sober-minded if your prayer life is going to be effective. See, a person who's self-controlled and sober-minded is a person who's able to think sensibly about what's going on. Uh, a self-controlled person will remain calm and, and considering all the concerns of life. They're, they're self-controlled. And a sober-minded person will be able to discern and be prudent and decide, okay, this is a priority and this is not. These are just distractions. And so your prayers will contain those priorities if you're sober-minded. And so that's the role of prayer. Well, prayer is another important role in your life. See, by praying, what you're doing is simply demonstrating that you are dependent upon God. A person who prays is saying, I am not capable of having this happen on my own. Unless you use prayer as a magic wand and think it's your power of prayer that's causing it. But for those of us that are Christians, that are humbled, we realize, I look at this world, I look at what it's asking me to do, I look at all the things I have to do, and I realize I am not capable, I need help. And the world says, oh, it's just a crutch. And my response is, you are right. I need a crutch. I need more than a crutch. I need a Savior. I need an all-powerful God. And, and, and so it, it reduces our pride when we realize that we must focus on what will get us through, and that is not ourselves but Christ. So a person who is living in light of his relationship with Christ, a person who's living in light of Christ's return, a person who's living in Christ's church is a person who is alert, and they're constant in prayer. And so I ask, is that you? Does it describe you? Unfortunately, I had to ask myself that same question. I wouldn't be much of a preacher if I didn't think through this myself. And, and I realize that things in this world distract me, and I'm sure they do you at times. Ask yourself, are you committed to praying to the church? Do you get up each morning and say, I'm going to begin this day by focusing on what the Lord says, not on what the news says, not on what Twitter says, not on what social media says. Are, are, are you praying for the church regularly? Are your priorities such that you realize that what's most important today is what Jesus calls his church to be? And so I pray for my brother and my sister and myself that, that the Lord will work in my heart so I will love Oh, they may have to face this trial and this tribulation, but maybe they do it with perseverance from the Lord. Are you praying that way? Have you, have you taken a moment and said, oh, that poor soul out there is going through so much. Let me help them. Or have you said, that poor soul out there who's lost is going through so much. Lord, I plead with you. I beg you, save their soul. It's the most important thing. And so, is that a priority? For you, Are you praying for the lost? Are you praying for the pastors? Are you praying for the elders, the deacons, and your brothers and sisters in Christ? If so, you're preparing yourself for the Lord's return. You're prepared for the Lord's return if they are your priorities. That's the first exhortation to pray. 
Second is to love. Peter says, above all, above it all, keep loving one another earnestly. Uh, Another translation is keep loving one another deeply. That word earnestly or or deeply can mean constant. The, the word describes something that is stretched or extended. We, we, in ancient Greek literature, used the word to describe a, a horse that was stretching out and running at full speed. And so you get the imagery there. The love of the saints is to keep stretching out in both depth and endurance. Peter here is describing the intensity. He's describing the exertion that ought to characterize your love for other believers. I've mentioned this. We've talked about love in, in a sermon before, and even before that, love. This word love here is agape. It, it, it's a love of choice, not of emotions. MacArthur said, John MacArthur said, such love is sacrificial, not sentimental, and requires the stretching, the exertion that we talked about, of believers' every spiritual muscle to love in spite of insult, injury, and misunderstanding from others. And so the mutual love that we're to have for one another in Christ's church is of prime importance. Let me just say this, that if we as a church are not known as a loving church, and people drive by and they see my name, that's not going to compel them to come in. Um, If we quote a verse about how they're sinners, we should do that. I have no problem with that. But that's probably not going to compel them to come in. Uh, Our name may or may not compel them to come in. What's going to compel them to come in? That they know either they were invited personally by or they know something's different about their church. They love one another. They love one another. So if we're going to have a hard time growing if we're not loving And you say, well, we speak the truth, and we should. And it's not really loving if you're not speaking the truth. Paul calls us, speak the truth in love. But if we're not loving, the truth is no one's going to want to listen to our truth. And so we need to be loving. what What did John say? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Here's the truth. If you don't love, you don't know God. That's what we're told here. And we know what Jesus said, that they'll know us by our love. And so Peter gives us a test here. He wants us to understand, to know if we truly love our brother and sister in Christ. Look again at verse 7. Keep loving one another earnestly, since or because love covers a multitude of sins. You can be sure... That if you're the type of person that really, really takes delight in finding and exposing other people's faults and sins, you are not a lover the way the Bible wants you to be a lover. One writer says, to cover sin means to pardon, to overlook personal wrongs. It means to overlook them rather than extend the conflict. Now, I'm going to keep this fight going until I get my way. A person who walks in love wants to end the conflict. How? By enduring the offense. They tolerate it. It doesn't mean you just get stepped on and that we shouldn't speak out for the truth. None of that's true. But we need to weigh these things. Jesus put it this way. 
Remember Peter came and said, you know, Jesus, I'm, I'm a really great guy. How many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? I've done it seven times. That was his argument, basically, up to seven times, because I've done that. And Jesus said, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. He's not asking you to do math there. He's basically saying, keep on forgiving. Keep on forgiving. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so you see the importance of love. I've said this over and over. It can't be emphasized enough. You've heard that line from me. Well, it can't be emphasized enough. I preached on it last week. Love for the saints is not something you should just hope comes naturally. You have to exert yourself. You have to work at it. You must pray about it. You must make it a priority above all else, as Peter says. Above all, above all, above all. Keep loving. Keep loving one another earnestly. Keep doing it earnestly. And so how do we do it? How do we demonstrate love? Well, you begin by forgiving others. That's true. You know, you just can't be in a relationship without forgiving someone. Why? Because we're sinners. So you begin there. That is true. But you have to go further than this. And the next two exhortations that he gives in our passage are ways of demonstrating love. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is the third exhortation in our passage. It's the third point. Show hospitality. That's how we love. This is one way that we love. I've talked about this already in another sermon. In last week's sermon, the word for hospitality means what? It means love strangers. And so Peter's saying, go beyond your friends, go beyond your buddies, and love even strangers, people you don't even know. That was the case in the Old Testament. They had to care for strangers. It was their responsibility. The Mosaic law told them they had to. You shall not wrong a sojourner. And, and, and we're told in Deuteronomy they were commanded to provide food for the alien who comes into the land. And in the New Testament, you see the same thing. We talked about it when we talked about Acts. Remember at Pentecost, all these people believe. And they had to find a place to stay if they were going to be taught. And so people had to show hospitality. They had to open up their homes and give these people a place to sleep. They had to provide meals for them. Um, it was showing um, uh, hospitality towards a stranger. In Acts 16, we get another example. You've heard of Lydia. She's converted. She was a worshiper of God. And when she heard Paul's message, the Lord opened up her heart to receive it. And so she became a believer. And we read there that when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. She was showing what? Hospitality. God saved her, and she, she opens up her home. And so how do we show hospitality? Well, we show it by inviting missionaries and maybe providing a meal for them as they come in, speakers. We can do all those things. That's what was happening here with Lydia. But it goes beyond that. It's when we open up our homes. Uh, to, to show love to one another, to share um, our ministries together, to share our fellowship together. Remember, they didn't meet in large sanctuaries back then. When it was time for worship, they didn't just come to the sanctuary. They had synagogues, but they were thrown out of most of those. What they did is they met from house to house. They met in their home. And in fact, there's no better way in our day and age to show hospitality than to open up your home. Uh, to invite others in for a weekly or bi-weekly meal or for fellowship, for prayer, 
uh, for study of God's Word. Week in and week out, we demonstrate love for one another and for Christ when we do that. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. One writer said, love expressed through hospitality plays a foundational role in evangelizing the lost as well as building up the body of Christ. You see how important love is? Oh, I want to see the lost saved. I have to preach the gospel. And you do. You cannot say, see anybody saved without the gospel. But you need to preach it in love. You need to demonstrate love so you have a listening ear of sorts. That's why I pointed out in my sermon on fellowship that I believe community groups are vitally important for the spiritual health of the church. We need them, not only for our own growth, but for reaching the lost. And never do, doing this is never easy. People can take advantage of you, of your hospitality. You may grow tired of providing service. Peter says, do this without grumbling. He had to say that because he knows it can cause grumbling when we have others over. The Archbishop of Canterbury said this. I'm sure he was teasing, but this is what he said. True Christian hospitality is making people feel at home when you wish they were at home. <laughs> it's, sometimes that's how you feel. But your feelings don't direct how you live. You're to show love. You're to show hospitality. I mean, if you're at my house and I just start going, oh, get out. Well, you're not, I'm not showing hospitality. I just may smile. I may try to nudge. <laughs> it's two in the morning. <laughs> Time to go. <laughs> the point is we're to show hospitality and we're to do it without grumbling. Meaning we're not doing it to see what we get in return. We're doing it because that's what Jesus wants. And so we do it. We're required to do it. So how do we do it here? How do we do it at St. Stephen? I'm glad you asked. We do it through life groups. We're going to be starting them up. Many of you have asked about this. Um, are we going to do life groups again? Yes, we are, because it's a great way of showing hospitality. It's a great way of loving one another. It's a great way of fellowshipping, and it's a great way of evangelizing. And you say, well, I don't have the gift of teaching. You do not need the gift of teaching. You need the gift of hospitality, or you need just the willingness to open up your home, invite people in, maybe prepare a meal, maybe just bring dessert. Just buy Philly pretzels. We don't really need anything else. You, know, just, you come together, you fellowship, you love one another, you pray with one another. If somebody's there with the gift of teaching, maybe you teach, but that's the point. It's desperately needed in our day. We live in a world, especially, you realize this now after COVID, how desperate people need to have connection. That it's not enough just to Zoom. It's not enough to just watch I'm grateful for those things that allow us to do more than we may have been able to do in the past, but we need more. This is why during COVID, we read not only of the number of cases of people who got sick, but we read of people who were depressed and committed suicide, and that depression was up. Why? They weren't in vital relationships. They weren't connected. They needed human interaction. That's what we need. The church can provide it. We're commanded to provide it through hospitality. And so maybe more than ever, Christians expressing love through hospitality is deeply needed. Well, according to our passage, there's another way we can show love, and that's our fourth point, exercise your gift. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of God's very grace. Verse 11, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, Peter just said the end is near, and he exhorts us to love one another and to go beyond hospitality and use our gifts, which everyone here has that's a believer in Jesus Christ. We all have them. To serve others is the purpose, as good stewards of God's very grace, he says. Uh, loving one another begins the reason why we're willing, when you think about it, is it, God, loving one another is going to allow us to forgive one another. It's going to give us a desire to show hospitality to one another. And now it should give us a desire to serve one another through the gifts that God has given us. Now, we, we talked about spiritual gifts a little bit, and we'll talk about it a little bit here. Let me just quickly point out some things we learn about this passage, for, uh, from this passage about your spiritual gifts. One, I want you to notice that love is the context for the spiritual gifts. Love's the context. In fact, in every passage that talks about the gifts where it's mentioned, here in 1 Peter, Romans, Corinthians, and Ephesians, in all those places, they talk about love as well. Corinthians chapter 12, the gifts. Chapter 14, the gifts. What's chapter 13? The love chapter. And, and we read um, as well in other places, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. That's how chapter 14 begins. Love, serve. Um, and so in Romans 12, we find the same thing. Let your love be genuine. He lists the gifts and then says, let your love be genuine. The point is the use of your spiritual and spirit-giving gift is to be done in the spirit of love. It's not about which gift you have. It's about, Lord, this is what's the best way for me to express my love. Well, hospitality helps, forgiving helps, but also I need to use my gift. The best way I can love you is used in the gift I have. The best way you can love me is by using your gift in return. And so, it's not so much to love in order to exercise your gift. You are to exercise your gift because you're expressing love. That's why you use it. That's the first thing. Second, and this follows from love, is that the gifts are given to serve and help others. The gift is given to you that you have, the gift that I have, the gift that we all have are given for others, not for your self-esteem. It's to build up the church, not your ego. This is particularly true for pastors. We stand in front of everybody. We want everyone to like us. And, and we want you to love every word that comes out of our mouths. And, and, and we think that I'm, use, I'm using this gift, and you should be appreciative of it. And, and I guess you should, but that's not the point. If that's my thinking, fire me. No, I, I, I preach because God's given me this gift, and I have to use it. And that's how I express love. They're given for ministry, not self-esteem. Um, Paul, Peter here goes on to say, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Varied means many faceted. There's many different gifts of different kinds. And God's grace is varied and so is his gifts varied. And all these various gifts are given for one another. And so what does that mean? That means that we need to welcome that there are going to be different people with different gifts. 
I'm going to want to teach and preach. Someone else is going to want to have prayer meetings every day. Why? They have the gift of prayer. Some people may say, we need to support more missionaries. We do. Why? Because they have the gift of of evangelism, want to reach out. We have all these varied gifts, and we're to welcome them all. And we're going to use them to share with one another and spur us on to love and good good deeds. Excuse me. And we do this to manifest God's grace in our lives and in the church. Here's another lesson. There are two categories of gifts. He says it here. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks, and whoever serves is one who serves by the strength God supplies. Whoever speaks will minister through the gifts of preaching and teaching and wisdom and knowledge and discernment, for example. That's how they'll express their gifts. Whoever serves will minister through gifts like hospitality, administration, prayer, mercy, helping others. A person who speaks, speaks what? The oracles of God. You don't, you don't come here each week, at least I hope you don't come here each week, for me to tell you stories about my family. I speak the oracles of God. I speak the truth of Scripture. That's what it's talking about. And those who have the speaking gifts must be committed to communicating God's Word. And a person with serving gifts must rely on the strength that God supplies. You don't exercise your gift in your own strength. And so in both cases, where's the focus? The focus isn't on you. The focus isn't on the gift. The focus is on God and His Word. That is what's central. The gift is meant to display that. And so it's no surprise that when those who speak utter God's word and those who serve do so in God's strength, we read in verse 11 that Jesus Christ receives all the glory. Strength that God's, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that's the last lesson about the spiritual gifts. Their use is for, and they're given to us, by God in order to glorify God. He gives you the gift. He gives you the word to teach and preach. He gives you the strength to serve, and he is glorified. And as I said in the introduction, the chief end of your existence is what? It's to glorify God. You're to live in Christ's church for the main purpose of glorifying God. And you can do that by exercising your spiritual gift for the loving service of others. And so we learn the context of the gifts, which is love, that they're given to serve and help others, that there are two categories, speaking and serving, and using your gifts in Christ's church glorifies God. Now, when you think of all that we just learned, and I, and I, looked, I looked for ways to shorten the sermon. I failed. But, you know, it's just so much information. There's a lot here to unpack. When you think of all that we've learned about living in Christ's church, we're to pray, we're to love, we're to show hospitality, we're to forgive, we're to use our gifts, we're to glorify God, we're to serve. When you think about all that, one way of putting it is you're called to live in Christ's church exactly the way Jesus lived his life. That's what we see here. First, it's not a Sunday-only activity. Sunday worship may be central, but it's not the complete picture. If you're only living for Christ on Sunday, you're not really a Christian. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't just go to the synagogue and then say, that's it. I don't have to do anything until next Saturday. What do we learn about Jesus in the Gospels? He says, as a man of prayer, 
He was loving and hospitable. He showed forgiveness, did he not? He used his gifts of speaking and serving. In fact, we think of his speaking gifts, of course. Um, and but what does the Bible tell us in Matthew 20? He came to serve, not to be served, and give his life a man- ransom for many. That's how Jesus lived. He glorified God by living a selfless life, even dying in our place. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. And see, right now, through his word, Christ has given us some commands this morning. And so, believer, live a life of prayer. That's the Christ life. And while you're praying, ask God to open up doors of opportunities for you to show hospitality here to the saints, uh, to serve one another. Lord, help me to love my brothers. Even when I'd rather grumble, help me not to grumble and to love my brothers. You won't do it perfectly. That's why Jesus had to die. If you were perfect, you would, he wouldn't have you. He had to die for you, and he has to strengthen you to do it. He, he paid for your failure to keep his commands to love and to pray and to show hospitality. But that's not an excuse. We have been loved by Christ. We have been served by Christ. We have been prayed for by Christ. We've been given the Holy Spirit of Christ. He saved us. He redeemed us. And so let's live a life as if we belong to him because we do. Let's live like we are part of Christ's church. Well, in closing, let me address a a group of people, the unbeliever. I'm not sure everybody's soul here. I don't know your heart, but let me address or maybe somebody watching on uh, the, the video, let me address the unbeliever. I want you to leave here this morning, and I want these words to be in your heart and in your mind. The end of all things is at hand. We're 2,000 years closer to that being true. It could be tomorrow. The end of all things is at hand. I want you to know that if you continue in your rejection of Jesus Christ, if you do not embrace Jesus as your Savior, it will not bode well for you when the end comes. This is how Jesus himself describes it. You say, Pastor, you know, you're talking about hell and judgment, and we don't do that. Well, we do if Jesus does. This is what Jesus said. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And Jesus will answer, and, and Jesus answered them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
And so you see the difference? The end is at hand. The difference between rejecting Jesus and receiving Jesus, it's the difference between eternal punishment and eternal life. And so what's my plea? Well, my plea is that you heed the warning. Because, see, once Jesus does return, when he does come back, it'll be too late if you have not repented beforehand. And so what are you to do? You're to look to Christ. You're to believe that he came and lived the perfect life for you, that he died for you, for your sin, that he rose, that you could be justified, declared righteous and forgiven. That's why he came. Pray. Pray, Lord, have mercy on me. Pray that forgive me. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to love you. Ask him uh, to, to speak to your heart and to, and to raise your dead bones, as it were, to give you life where there was only death. Ask him for salvation. And see, if you do that, if you did it just now, if you did it 100 years ago, you did it 50 years ago, you did it 10 years ago, if you did that, listen to these words from Jesus. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so you'll inherit the kingdom. And so believe, pray, love, serve, and do it for the glory of Christ. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we do hear these words, and indeed it's much to take in and recognize that we are unworthy to be called your children in light of this. And so forgive us for not praying as often, for not loving, for failing to serve, for not showing hospitality, for not using our gifts, being selfish, all these things we ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us individually and as a body to live our life as Christ lived here on earth by his power. In Christ's name, amen.